G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Well, folks, here we go again with another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, otherwise known as AGQP, uh, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. You know what, Tim? I was just thinking that we must be getting close to my age, 50, episodes of the podcast so far is that about right <laughs> well i think we'll get to 50 episodes before you get to be 50 excellent uh, <laughs> but yeah that, that's right by the time we get halfway through this season we'll hit the 50 episode milestone uh, we still have a few weeks to go before that happens actually i was just thinking i wonder if we might be able to get in contact with some people who are listeners to the show who might want to tell us what they like about it and how it's influenced their understanding of scripture. So, um, yeah, if anyone wants to drop us a line. That is a, a lovely idea, and it's always good when we get some feedback. So, yeah, if you are listening and you'd like to give us a bit of uh, feedback, encouragement, uh, uh, whatever, please get in touch. Um, anyway, we had better uh, focus and get started with today's uh, Bible reading. So what passages are we looking at today, Tim? All right, so today we're looking at Genesis 3, as we have done throughout this third season. And we're going to pick up from verse 7 and read through to verse 10. So this is the bit where the man and the woman in the garden start to realise that they messed up. I'll read it from the ESV. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, I've mentioned this many times before, but for those who came in late, we need to keep in mind that Semitic languages such as Hebrew do not deal with abstractions. If there's something intangible that they want to talk about, the author is going to use the language of something tangible to make that point. And that's why we have the reference to eyes here, when the author really wishes to speak about the minds of the humans. As we've been talking about recently in previous episodes, the context of this story in the garden is a question of the apprehension of wisdom. And in this case, it's an illegitimate apprehension because it goes against the commandment of God. Nevertheless, it has now occurred and we are witnessing the aftermath of that fateful decision. The fact that we're talking about wisdom is the major indicator that this language of the eyes is intended to be read metaphorically as the mind, and therefore the opening of said eyes relates to the gaining of some kind of wisdom that expanded the horizons, the minds of the humans in the garden. It's not like they looked down and saw their private parts and said, oh my goodness, I didn't even know I had those. And this is where our light-hearted play on the words for nude and shrewd that we looked at earlier from the end of Genesis 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 suddenly takes a sickening turn because the expectation of wisdom attained by partaking of the forbidden fruit is dashed to pieces by the realisation that everything the humans already had has just been stripped away from them in the very same act. Previously, we considered the nakedness of the humans in chapter 2 as a reflection of the fact that they were not lacking anything in order to be able to do the work that God had called them to do, and were not burdened with anything extra. This was viewed as a purely functional depiction of the man and the woman that showed them as needing not be ashamed because of their fitness for the task at hand, 
God did not set them up to fail. They were well suited for the responsibility that God gave them. Yeah, and it's so important for us to remember that God is, true to his character, a just God. And there is no way that the biblical God, is, as is described, would ever put us, would ever put humans in a situation where the only choice is to fail. Yeah, that's right. Now, however, they are seeing this nakedness with their own eyes and realising that they are no longer fit for purpose. They had been called to be God's representatives, but now their actions have contradicted his words. You can't represent God like that. So does that mean that the man and the woman are no longer God's image bearers then? No, they don't lose that status or that responsibility, but they aren't doing the job. And without divine intervention, they cannot be restored to perfect function in keeping with that status and that responsibility. So what happens now then? We will now see the nakedness of the humans in the garden as a foreshadowing of their exile, in the same way that a conquering army leads away the captives of the subjugated nation, naked to a land that they do not know. So the man and his wife are laid bare before they are driven out. They have been defeated and ashamed, not by an enemy, but by the commandment of God, which they rejected. The serpent deceived them, but he did not make them do what they did. That comes from their own self-interest and their own desire to determine destiny for themselves. In case you're wondering, you actually do see depictions of uh, captives being led away naked after being defeated in battle. And yet they did receive wisdom. We can see that one thing now apparent to the man and his wife is that certain parts of the human body deserve special honour and ought to be treated as such. And this is not an arbitrary thing because the honourable parts of the body which require this special modesty are those in which is the function of bringing forth life. All life is sacred to God. The necessity for loincloths is recognised and acted upon. It's not that a person's private parts are dishonourable, but rather that a dishonourable mind will misappropriate their purpose. Therefore, it is better to cover them. So it says a lot more about the corruption of the human mind than it does about the body. But when we see the manner in which the man and the woman dress themselves, it's almost comical because they cover themselves with fig leaves. And you might think, well, what else do they have? They've got a couple with something. But it's no accident that they chose foliage as a covering. The serpent told them that when they ate of the fruit, that they would be as gods. And we've already talked at great length about the way that the gods in this story are depicted as trees. So what are these humans doing what are they up to do they think the god is just going to look at them and say well if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck yeah well they might be able to fool themselves for a short time but when it comes to the crunch the only choice they have is to face it or hide from the truth and then they hear the sound of god or if we're going to read this correctly the voice of the lord god in hebrew quite often we have the notion of sound reflected in the word used for voice so many translations will have sound where the word itself translates to voice but what is the voice for if not to speak words? The very sound of God's approaching reminds the humans of his words and his commandment. You know, a lot of people really love verse 8, but I think they're only focused on the first half of that verse. Now it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The use of the title, the Lord God, is again a reminder of the covenant and the relationship that exists between God and his elected representatives. And any reminder of the covenant should also function as a reminder of its terms and consequences. This is not to be taken lightly. But everyone wants to focus on how nice it sounds. Oh, isn't it lovely how God strolls through the garden with his friends, enjoying the beautiful weather in the lovely garden. 
This is not a pleasant afternoon stroll. Word used for walking here is the kind of terminology that we expect to see referring to shepherds on duty, looking for a lost sheep. And shepherds don't just wander around with a dreamy look in their eyes while the sheep frolic in the meadow. They're at work, and sheep can be tiresome work. God is not happy, and how do we know that he's not happy? You might know that a Hebrew word for breeze or wind is ruach. And taking the word in that sense, you can see how a translator might arrive at an expression like in the cool of the day. When you get a cool breeze in the afternoon coming through and taking the edge off the heat of the day, that's a delightful experience. We get that here in Western Australia in the summer months. Every afternoon, a breeze comes in from the Indian Ocean, which we affectionately refer to as the Fremantle Doctor. Makes you feel better straight away. Sure does. There's nothing better on a hot summer's day than feeling the sea breeze in the afternoon and then having an ice cream and an afternoon nap. But this breeze in the text is not here to make you feel better because ruach has another meaning. It means spirit. Remember, we don't do abstracts. Spirit's not tangible, but we can identify the wind. You know, when you read the prophets, they often talk about the future. They talk about a time when everything will be made right again. They talk about people getting what they deserve, about justice, and they talk about the wrath of God. And there's a particular way in which they refer to the time when that's going to happen. We need to be mindful that there are times in Scripture where the prophets refer to an event that is in the future for them, but in the past, for us modern readers. And we can look back on those events in history and see what those events entailed. There's death and destruction and desolation. There's exile, nakedness, captivity, slavery, fruitless labour. The people serve cruel masters who care nothing for them and only keep them alive to torment them for their own pleasure. These are things that the Israelite people were well acquainted with by the time they were reading these words in the Babylonian captivity. And what did the prophets call the time when this would happen? They called it the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of his wrath. And all of these things would happen in that day. Let's have a look at some examples. So Exodus 32 verse 34, but now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Job 20, 28, the possessions of his house will be carried away and dragged off in the day of God's wrath. Proverbs eleven four: riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Isaiah 13, 13, therefore I'll make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Ezekiel seven nineteen. they cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. Obadiah 1, 12 to 14 says, But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
a bit later in 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is chapter 5, verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And Philippians 2.16, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. Now, I said recently on the podcast that our goal in seeking human perfection is not to be found in some vain attempt to return to the way things were in the Garden of Eden, but instead needed to be oriented around our eschatology. And that is nowhere more clear than in the tradition of the prophets. Hopefully, now that we've seen this version of events in the Garden of Eden, we can recognise the voice of the prophets here in the primeval history. And we can see that the prophetic tradition and this manner of interpretation continues in the writings of Paul. There remains to be seen another day of the Lord before the final judgment. So forget your afternoon daydreams in the Garden of Eden, because the Lord God comes looking for you in the spirit of the day, and he is not happy. Do not forget what the Garden of Eden is. This is the place where God holds counsel. This is the courtroom where the fates of heaven and earth are decided. Do you really think that you can escape the wrath of God with a handful of fig leaves? It makes sense now why the man and his wife hide themselves from his face, doesn't it? Now, I know your text might say that they hid themselves from his presence, but the Hebrew there literally means face. It's hard to look someone in the eye when you've done the wrong thing by them, isn't it? Because you have to look at the results of what you've done. You can see it in their eyes. And people are going to say, Tim, you shouldn't anthropomorphize God because he's not a man. So why talk about him like he has a face? Yeah, Tim. So why talk about God like he has a face? Well, no, I'm not anthropomorphizing God. It works the other way around. God made us in his likeness and in his image. So God doesn't have a human face. We have a face because he does. We represent him. He doesn't represent us. But the man and his wife hid from the face of the Lord God. And where did they hide? Among the trees of the garden. They still thought they might blend in amongst the other divine beings now that they each have become like one of them. Or perhaps they thought that these created beings, these lesser gods, might afford them some protection. It's futile, of course. It kind of reminds me of when, uh, you know, when we were little kids and we'd uh, think we were hiding just by putting our hands over our eyes. Yeah. And God asked the men, where are you? Does God really not know where the man is? Does he honestly not know the difference between the trees of the garden and the man that he created? Could a man really fool God into thinking that he'd become a divine being? It's a rhetorical question. Exactly. If I take my wife to the football and she goes to get us some hot dogs and I notice halfway through the second quarter of the game that she hasn't come back yet, I'm going to call her on the phone and say, where are you? And when she answers me, she's not going to say, I'm at the football or I'm at the stadium. She's going to say, oh, the line's really long and I'm waiting in the queue and it's taking forever and I still haven't been served. She knows that I know where she is. She knows that the point of the question is not about her location. What I'm really asking is, why is this taking so long? I expect you to be back by now. And her answer is going to reflect that understanding because instead of telling me where she is standing, she's going to tell me why she hasn't come back yet. The question, where are you, doesn't mean tell me where you are. It means why are you not here? It means my expectations of you have not been met and I want to know why. We had an understanding that a certain thing would take place and that hasn't happened and I'm looking at you for an explanation. Uh, well said, <laughs> but we still have people who look at this passage and say, well, clearly God doesn't know everything because they didn't even know where Adam was. I know, right? Are you serious? You think the creator of the universe couldn't find a naked man hiding in a garden behind a cheap disguise? 
evidently the man understood what the question meant because when he responds to God, he doesn't say, here I am, God, over in the garden. You probably didn't see me because of the fig leaves. Instead, he says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And it doesn't help that most translations completely ignore the reading of the texts that are presented here with regard to the Lord coming in the spirit of the day. But I suppose if you think that the Lord is having a pleasant stroll through the garden and enjoying the afternoon breeze, then maybe it would still puzzle you as to why the man would be afraid. But you should be in no doubt of that now. He's terrified, and he should be. Look at the way people respond in Exodus 20 when God appears to Moses on Mount Sinai. This is uh, verses 18 and 19. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. This is God speaking in love to his people that he's just rescued from slavery in Egypt, and yet the Israelites are absolutely terrified because the presence of God is so fearsome that the people cannot withstand his appearance or his voice. It's not a small thing to appear before the living God. The man realizes now that in spite of the cover of the fig leaves, he remains naked before God. He is no longer equipped for the task that God had set for him, and that's what makes him naked. He's hiding because he knows that the holiness of God is an all-consuming fire, and he has just become highly flammable. He's got to get out of there before he dies. And, of course, we've read the story many times, and we know that God will show mercy, but we're going to have to wait for that till next time. But now, the real takeaway from what we've learned today is that the apocalyptic worldview of ancient Israel was not a late invention from the 3rd century BC. Instead, the apocalyptic worldview has always formed the framework for the interpretation of Scripture, and that's why I say the eschatology should be derived from the text and not be imposed on it. The day of the Lord is not just an invention of 10th century prophets or some kind of literary device picked up in the few centuries before Christ and redacted into the text. When we were looking at examples of the day of the Lord earlier, we found it as far back as the Exodus. So I'm being serious when I say that we need to stop looking backwards and trying to get back into the Garden of Eden, and we need to start looking forward and being guided by the eschatology of the biblical text to bring us to the restoration of all things that God has promised and our salvation from the wrath to come at the judgment. All right, well, it is time to move on to our giant questions uh, Q&A segment, and we'll pick up that awesome study again next week. Yeah, that's right. Next time we'll be looking at the blame game that gets played in the garden and how that works out. So, uh, yeah. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Let's have a question. What do you got for us, Chris? All right. Well, this week we have another anonymously submitted question and, uh, Nameless listener is asking about the enormous cluster of grapes that the spies brought back from Canaan in the Book of Numbers, Chapter 13. Is this enormous cluster of grapes proof that the Nephilim had genetically modified crops to grow supersized to satisfy their appetites? They must have needed so much food to sustain the metabolism of a giant. Mm, okay, well, that is a really interesting question, and it's good to get back into some giant-related stuff because I know that's what people like to hear. There's more than one podcast where the listeners get excited every time somebody mentions giants. I'm looking at you, Lord of Spirits. 
certainly the appetite of the giants is the stuff of legend. And we have talked in the past about the way that the eating habits of the giants made it into a variety of ancient Jewish texts, including First Enoch and Jubilees and the late forgery that is the modern book of Jasher. And of course, there are others as well. And just by way of example, for those who are not familiar with those books, I'll give you an extract from First Enoch so you can see what all the fuss is about. Here I'm using the translation by George Shod from 1882. And this is First Enoch chapter 7. And they took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go into them and mixed with them, and taught them charms and conjurations, and made them acquainted with the cutting of roots and of woods. They became pregnant and brought forth great giants, whose stature was three thousand ells. These devoured all the acquisitions of mankind, till men were unable to sustain themselves. And the giants turned themselves against mankind in order to devour them. And they began to sin against the birds and the beasts, and against the creeping things and the fish, and devoured their flesh among themselves, and drank the blood thereof. Then the earth complained of the unjust ones. Okay, so... The first thing to notice in this text is that the giants are really huge. The text says 3,000 L's, and if you're not sure what that means, an L is the equivalent term for cubit that you might find in the Bible, so it's not a Stranger Things reference. It comes from the Latin ulnia, which means forearm, and the cubit is basically the same measurement by a different name. The generally accepted standard size for the cubit, as stated in the Bible, is thought to be roughly 18 inches or 45 centimetres, that means a giant standing 3,000 L's high would be almost a mile high or nearly 1.4 kilometres in height. That's uh, pretty big and uh, too hard to believe, really. It sounds more like fairy tale stuff than anything you might find in scripture. Yeah, it really is out there. It's kind of Lord of the Rings material, isn't it? Or Jack and the Beanstalk, even. Yeah. The tallest person recorded in the Bible outside of the disputed height of Goliath is only somewhere between 7.5 and 8.6 feet tall. Only 8.6 feet tall, that's not tall at all. An Egyptian giant whose name is not recorded. And if you accept the reading in the Masoretic text, then you have Goliath at 9 feet 9. But the majority opinion on Goliath's height is closer to 6 feet 9. So if you're thinking that it might be a bit of a stretch to be taking first Enoch literally here, with an entire race of giants, 4,500 feet in height, then you're not alone. I'm going to suggest that the writer of First Enoch is using hyperbole to make a point here, rather than actually giving us real scientific data. And I say that because when we move on in this passage in First Enoch 7 to the description of what the giants consumed, we should probably be thinking along similar lines and interpreting this as somewhat of an exaggeration as well. Nevertheless, I think we can be confident that we're still dealing with big people with big appetites. Just not that big. Yeah, when we compare similar stories from Genesis, First Enoch, Jubilees, and the Book of Jasher, we find that it's only First Enoch that has these ridiculously huge numbers for the size of the giants. But the common thread in all of the stories is the abuse of animals to feed the appetites of the giants. Again, we've mentioned this before on the program, and funnily enough, it was in the context of a discussion around genetic engineering when we talked about it before. Now, I have no doubt that an army of rather tall warriors would certainly consume vast amounts of food, and certainly more than your average population of normal-sized people. But leaping to the conclusion of genetic engineering is really unsustainable. As I've said several times now on the program, the most significant technological advancement that we can actually prove that existed in the time period that the Bible speaks of 
was the advent of metallurgy, and in particular, the advanced use of iron in a time that preceded the Iron Age by at least a millennium, probably two. That means that fanciful notions of genetic experimentation are really unconvincing. And the best you can do is suggest the breeding of mules as working animals, but that doesn't fit the expectation of breeding feedstock. And the point of all this is to say that just as we have no credible indicators in the text that would suggest genetic engineering of animals, the situation is no different when we consider the plant king. True, but the text clearly says in the book of Numbers that the cluster of grapes was so big that it had to be carried on a pole. So you can't tell whether this was just an ordinary bunch of grapes. You know, when you look at a bunch of grapes in, in the shops or the supermarket, you might be lucky and get one that's maybe two pounds or a kilo in weight. So these grapes have to be the size of like tennis balls or something. Yeah, and listeners, before you laugh at that idea, there are actually depictions of that scene in various artworks that show the spies carrying on poles a cluster of a small number of enormous grapes. So this text in Numbers 13 has certainly captured the imagination of interpreters throughout the years, and there have been numerous attempts to depict or to explain just what's going on here. Let's read the text for ourselves from the source material. We're going to have a look at Numbers 13 and see what these interpreters were working with. So this is Numbers 13 from verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Lebo Hamah. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Achiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. Now, all kinds of suggestions have been made for how the spies transported such a huge cluster of grapes that it required two men to carry them. And most depictions of this scene involve more than one pole for supporting the cluster, so those are immediately incorrect. The text is clear that a single pole was carried between two men. Remember that a cluster of grapes hangs on the vine from a single point, so it's really not inconceivable to think that from that single point, which easily holds the entire cluster intact while it's attached to the vine, one can simply tie it to the pole. But the real question we have, though, is the, the nature of the grapes themselves. Like, are we talking about a single bunch of massive grapes, or are we talking about a really large cluster of ordinary grapes that we're familiar with? Well, getting back to the whole genetic engineering thing, we know that people have been tinkering with grapes for a long time. But so far, the best we've managed with grapes is a handful of varieties that gives us grapes a little bit over an inch in diameter. Probably the most significant advancement in the development of grapes is the advent of seedless varieties, but that was unheard of only a single generation ago. So no one's got giant grapes, and we have no evidence that they ever did exist. On the other hand, Ordinary grapes can grow in some really big clusters. In fact, the land of Israel is world-renowned for its produce, and I've seen some photos of the clusters of grapes that grow there. 
Now, we might typically think of a bunch of grapes as being the portion of grapes that you might buy in the supermarket, which consists of a small twig with a few dozen grapes on it. But if you ever get the opportunity to visit a vineyard and see the size of the entire cluster of grapes that can grow on a single vine, you might be surprised at the size that a cluster of grapes can reach. I'm going to post up some pictures that I found online, and you'll find them on the blog page at my website, giantanswers.com. These clusters are as big as six feet from top to bottom and absolutely loaded with thousands of ordinary, normal-sized grapes, and these grown in Israel. Once you take a moment to look at those pictures, think about how heavy those clusters would have to be, you can easily understand why it would require two men to carry the entire cluster between them on a pole. Some of these clusters that you'll see in the pictures would have to be a couple of hundred pounds easily. And these are ordinary, regular grapes like what you would find in the supermarket. The difference is when you buy it in the supermarket, you're getting a little twig off that branch, not the whole branch. So I think it's safe to say that the myth of Joshua and the giant grapes is busted. I'm happy to say that there were lots of grapes, but they were certainly not genetically engineered superfruits. And I guess the important thing to take away from the story is really not some kind of insight into the nature of civilization or the kind of soil they had in the land of Canaan. The Lord had promised his people a land flowing with milk and honey, and in the provision of this cluster of grapes, God showed a token or a deposit guaranteeing that he would be true to his word. Joshua came back from the land of giants bearing fruit. And centuries later, Yeshua came back from the land of the dead giants and gave us the Holy Spirit. And we are tasked with growing that fruit so big that we can't hold it all on our own. Yeah, that's a, a great uh, a great link there. And I never made that connection before, really, between the fruit that Joshua brought out of the land of the giants and the spiritual gifts that uh, Jesus gave us by his Holy Spirit after he ascended from Sheol. That's a pretty awesome and encouraging link. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think many people would have seen that. That's, that's why you just got to keep reading your Bible, let it soak in, and let the stories become the reality of your own life. All right. Well, that's all for this episode. So we'll wrap it up there and we'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thanks as always for listening. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, GravesForsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon. Paperback, Check out the other podcasts at RavenCreekSC.com, GiantAnswers.com. Read the blog and have some socials, but you can subscribe to the show. Send us all your questions and
stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. I bought some nice cancelling headphones recently, which are pretty good actually. They're good for like just listening to scripture or music while I pray. It's like yeah, right. really, this house gets pretty noisy. Are the kids uh, sleeping? Well, they're quiet. That's I when think. you have to worry. Yeah. <laughs> it means they're plotting. And then they hear the sound of children who will not go to bed. All right, so today we're looking at Genesis 3, of course, as we have done throughout this third season, and we're going to pick up from verse 7 and read through that. All right, so today we're looking at Genesis 3. I'm trying to binge um, Stranger Things. But, yeah, it's very horror-y. Um, have you watched Obi-Wan? Mm. Some timeline queries. Oh, yeah. So, like, how does this fit in? That? Hang on a minute. So I don't know if some retcon is going on, but, uh, anyway, yeah, especially if he's going to meet Anakin, which he, ha- which he hasn't yet. But, yeah, I don't yeah, know how they're going to. Well, they're setting up for that, and I'm like, really? You know, the, the only reason they can sort of get away with that, I think, is because Darth Vader never finishes his sentence. <laughs> yeah, what does he actually say? Um, Last time I... S- you Last. were the master, I was the apprentice. Isn't that what he says? The presence I've not felt since. <laughs> oh, really? Off. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Hello. Hello there. I can't see myself, but that's okay. Where I are can we? see you. Oh, about, that's amazing. It's not about looking at you. So. It is about looking at myself, actually. No, no, <laughs> that's why there's mirrors. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'll leave you to it. Nice to see you, Chris. You too, Liz. Have a good night. You too, mate. I went into it sort of pre-warned that it was going to be more like an Evil Dead movie than a Marvel movie. I was like, this is awesome. And then I was like, oh. (laughs) I'm wearing an enormous jacket because it's freezing. I understand. I've started wearing a beanie and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't suit me. I don't look cool in a beanie. Do it. (laughs) Yeah, like the... um, the evil voice in your head now, you know, do the thing. Mm. <laughs> do it, do it now. Cue me, come on, cue me. I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like your auntie, or did you say Artie? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, sounds, she's a lovely woman. Uh, she did say Artie, right? Yeah. You sound as, I thought she said, you sound like my auntie. <laughs> no, we don't have any aunties from Austria. Oh. But the real question we have is the nature of grapes. Sorry, I'm reading your line. <laughs> no, please continue. No, no. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you can't tell me that this was just like an ordinary bunch of grapes, right? When you look at a bunch of grapes in the shops in the supermarket, you might be lucky to get one that's maybe two pants. Let's just try that again. (laughs) When you said two pounds, I thought you were going to say two pants. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's one way to carry grapes. (laughs) These grapes got to be the size of tennis balls. (laughs) Oh dear. I don't know how much longer I can do this, Tim. I, I like the um, idea of getting some feedback from listeners or 
like getting them to like record themselves and send in ordering messages somehow or something. I don't know. Yeah. Or just yeah. read. We can read it out or something. Yeah. Well, people are certainly free to submit whatever they whatever they can. Yeah. Um, yeah, a bit of audio would be great, but uh, yeah, quite happy to just read stuff out too if people want to send something in. Yeah, to sort of mark the milestone, I suppose. All the arguments that people give for flat Earth cosmology come from taking poetic literature too literally. I'm in bed with the with the uh, the scientific conspiracy, and you know, it's it's all evolution and transhumanism, and you know, it's all a big it's all a big cover up of the truth, you know. I'm all about the truth, and I'm like, ah, oh, dude, you say truth like you know what it means. But that's uh, why myself and on the podcast I say things like, you know, don't derive your theology or your cosmology or whatever from smoking weed and watching YouTube because that's where you end up.